The equanimity that I'd like to talk about tonight was embedded in the chant that we did at the end, the four sublime abidings radiated to the four quarters. It's a, a nice setting for the for the four sublime abodies, which are they go together nicely, and in under in order to understand those four, why they group them that way, you, you need to understand the relationship between equanimity and the others. Metta, loving kindness, is quite often isolated from the others, but I think if you don't understand equanimity, haven't practiced equanimity, then a practice just of pure metta might slip into slightly distorted experience. The problem with loving-kindness and also with compassion is that they can slip into slight distorted variations and most people who uh, when they're practicing compassion or loving-kindness they they don't realize they're not really practicing what the Buddha is advocating so compassion can easily have an element of sympathetic sorrow to it and loving-kindness can uh, turn into personal biased kind of affection. Loving kindness is not personal affection, really. It's something that is positive and warm, but in spite of the good qualities of beings or the interesting quality of beings, because if it's based on some particular aspect of a being, then it becomes just partiality, comes uh, preference. It's a warm emotion. We have this in our families. We have this in our friend relationships. We have the warm emotion, but it's actually for very conditional reasons. And people might think that they are a warm and loving person, but when... Circumstances change when characters change. Uh, then uh, you may find that the that emotion fades away, and so it's not really this exalted emotion of loving kindness. Equanimity plays its part in this as well. It's there to balance loving-kindness. It's the coolness that is present at the same time as the warmth of loving-kindness. So I used to talk a lot about this idea of cool head and warm heart, that they are, you don't flicker back and forth between a cool head and a warm heart, but you can maintain the two of them together. Equanimity is there. It sees the big picture. It remembers the big picture. 
It knows that all things are rising and passing away. So it's very connected to wisdom. And this allows you to, though, participate in uh, the warmth of uh, goodwill for other beings without getting swallowed by it, without getting lost in it. So this is why these two are actually very beautifully paired. Compassion, sympathetic joy are actually just variations on loving kindness. They just are for a specific type of being. So compassion is loving kindness for those who are suffering explicitly at that time. And sympathetic joy is for those, is loving kindness for those who are happy. You're celebrating, in this case, with loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy, you can have uh, participate uh, sympathetic um, joy with those who are enjoying themselves but not sympathetic sorrow with those who are suffering. Instead, it is this warmth of loving kindness. It's a, it's a beautiful experience. Although you're offering whatever you can to beings that are suffering, you are not participating in the suffering. So you can actually be in a state of exalted well-being while Others are not. And uh, that's certainly not being unsympathetic. I think that anybody who works in medicine would realize they would quickly burn out if they had to be empathically sorrowful with every patient that came through the door. Same for social workers, uh, same for a lot of people who uh, decide that it would be uplifting, a beautiful thing to assist people who need assistance. But uh, it's very well known that you can, if you don't understand this compassion, it's very easy to absorb it, absorb the negative and uh, burn out. And then you're of no use. So it's very important that equanimity is well developed in the background. And I'd be, be really nice to, to give courses to nurses and doctors and psychiatrists and social workers and teachers, especially uh, elementary school teachers, teachers all the way through, including professors in universities. They would benefit from uh, courses which both cultivate goodwill, loving kindness, and equanimity. Because it's not well understood in um, the West. It's it's not all that well understood anywhere, but uh, in the West there's a particular spin on this. It's kind of a legacy from Christianity, I think. Um, Christianity is very different than the kind of the 
some of the attitudes that the Greeks had. Again, the Greek early Greek philosophers had were very well acquainted with uh, equanimity and the necessi- necessity for it, and some of the Roman philosophers as well. The Stoics, etc., are well acquainted with it. But Christianity, in some ways, I, I think it's a slight misunderstanding, but they, they sometimes celebrate suffering. And it gets confused sometimes that, that the, the sorrow, the, the heavy sorrow that you're carrying is a, is a kind of a necessary part of the... Uh, of the, the Christian vision, and that, that whether you're a Christian or not, or ever went to church or anything, it's it's floating around, and it's still part of the ethos. So it's something to inspect in oneself. Do you really have you really cl- clarified this injunction by the Buddha to free yourself from this un- unnecessary suffering even in the ca- in the face of the suffering of others and it it is quite amazing how bad life can be for people they they get involved in just dreadful not just intense brief periods but just sub- sustained long years and decades of very uh, painful emotional confusion, disaster. And to look at that, it's very easy for most people to s- uh, either shut down or to sink into, uh, into despair over that. Now, the Buddha does not approve of that. He himself thought... He- uh, he'd had enough of samsara <laughs> and uh, encouraged people to awake, awaken to that as well. Remember the sights that he saw uh, in the story of the Bodhisattva going out of the palace. He saw the, the old man, the sick man, the dead man, and the renunciate, the some sort of yogi going off into the forest uh, in a very unworldly way, uh, wearing some sort of robe, renouncing engagement in the in the world, because the the world, when that hit his consciousness, it withered his enthusiasm, since this is an intrinsic part of human existence. So the Buddha is not suggesting that one can uh, just continue merrily in spite of all these things, but that one should acknowledge that it's, a, it's, it's not you can't ultimately win this game, but you're in it. And it's the game that must be played. This one you don't get to say, I don't want to play. Life, you're in it. You arrive here. And various decisions get made about how to play it. Some are disappointed by it and uh, check out. But that, that is unskillful. 
What I mean by check out is they either commit suicide or they uh, enumb themselves with various drugs and alcohol and so forth. This is the avoidance of things because it's very painful. And others avoid it by developing a philosophy of eternalism where one will will one enter heaven and remain there forever. These are both attempts to solve the problem of existence. Uh, the Buddha is not taking up either of those extremes. Those are shallow solutions. And the Buddha, again, he does, doesn't think, it's, it's, it just does not, uh, is not convinced that there is any eternal uh, blissful existence. There, any existence has entropy built right into it. Certainly in modern times, in the scientific vision of the universe, no one thinks anymore that the universe is stable and eternal. It's surprising how recent that is. Uh, right up to the early 20th century, lots of scientists assumed that the universe is stable and quite possibly eternal. Uh, those who are trying to formulate ideas about the universe outside of uh, a religious view, they they had no particular reason to believe that it wasn't stable. It's only in the as uh, astronomy and astrophysics developed that they began to realize that it was not eternal. That these uh, stars and so forth were actually being extinguished. And then a more upsetting news that everything is moving away from you at a rapid rate, <laughs> which uh, became the idea of the Big Bang. That's recent, very recent. By the way, it was a Catholic priest that made that discovery. Uh, happened to have a PhD in astrophysics, but he was the one that recognized that the world, the universe is expanding and that the implications of that are is that it's expanding from a point. So this is, suddenly we're in this, the Buddhist universe where nothing is stable, including the entire universe is moving, disintegrating. The ideas of eternalism are jeopardized in that. I noticed, though, that uh, annihilationism is, is becoming more popular. Um, so that's, that's a solution that the Buddha rejected as well. Not a good uh, solution. Uh, annihilation occurs in many ways, like you can, you know, suicide is one of them, but uh, uh, temporary annihilation, like uh, just sleeping too much or medicating uh, to dim the experience or just distracting yourself. These are a, 
attempts to solve the issue by eliminating the situation. So the Buddha is coming, has to come up with some viable alternative, some way to be in what he recognizes as a place where there is, you can't find a stable, lasting, safe place in it. And the opposite, the avoidance, the checking out is also unsatisfactory. And so he has to find some way to be in it, because you are in it, and at the same time not fooling yourself that there's some place that you can get stable safety. And he discovers there's only it's a, the only satisfactory solution is through a, a great deal of refined uh, insight and effort into one's own mind and emotional structure. And that you can find, you can find a steady state of refuge, uh, safety in uh, in wisdom itself. And one of the manifestations of this, one of the most refined um, of this, is equanimity. But he doesn't. Again, he doesn't discount the warmth. You know, people find it the idea of just withdrawing into a kind of a coolness is uh, ignores kind of the your whole biological structure, which yearns for so, so warmth, quality of warmth and interaction and relationship to other beings. So he's, he's very careful with that, and. He says that he introduces this for the first time in the world, that nobody has ever taught this before. Nobody has ever uh, described universal, unconditional loving kindness. And, in, and at first when you th- hear that, you think that it must be... No, you can't find any prehistorical uh, advocacies of that. Uh, his, his, the radiation, what he's suggesting is for all beings, right? So w- wherever they are, and without reference to whether they're just human. So it's not, a, not only about beyond your tribe. There are plenty of advocates of, of goodwill towards your neighbors and those who are in your tribe. And then there's your enemies, and then there's other beings that are not in the human spectrum. And all of the philosophies of the time... Neglect a certain portion of living beings. Uh, they they fall outside of the practice of goodwill. So the Buddha is uh, suggesting that none should fall out this outside of the practice of goodwill. That they don't need to qualify in any way. So they. This is his solution to the fact that you are in this game and you have to play it skillfully and he does suggest though that there is a way out there is an end to it but not a naive or clumsy end to it not by distraction not by intoxication not by sleep not by by death so this practice of wisdom 
is something that's it's stable in motion. Wisdom is always adjusting to the present and is con- continuously reacting appropriately to the situation, to the present situation. And equanimity is too. So there's that active equanimity, which in, a, in all kinds of situations. Certain, uh, you probably are okay in certain situations when it unfolds. You have a little bit of warning and so forth that, that something might be coming up and you prepare yourself and try to calm yourself down. And that's, that's good. That's the development of equanimity. If you have that, then you should start working on a shorter time periods right down to surprises. Can you still get taken by surprise or are you equanimous? Have you, did you decide this morning... Whatever happens, there are no surprises. Equanimity is never surprised. It comes down to the microsecond. One of the hardest things to, to do, including for even well-practiced monks, is startling, the startle reaction. But you can practice even down to the startle reaction. It's almost... Some psychologists think that it's impossible that the, the, the physical body is wired to, to startle, and there's an emotional reaction. At it. It's, you know, sudden, like the other night, a bird hit the window, if you remember, unless you were in a deep state of samadhi. Bam! Just near, I was sort of halfway into the sitting, or just bam! And I opened my eyes, and I, I saw it. It actually survived, but... Um, that is a startle. That's a, that's a, a very sudden. Do you have, have you practiced for those events? Because there are such events in life, and it quite, they leave quite a mark, actually. A shot in the night, <laughs> a gunshot in the night, <laughs> a, a near miss with a car. Uh, something that happens regularly in Canada is slipping on the ice. It's a very interesting. You see the person flail for a brief second, an elaborate and rapid dance, and down they go. <laughs> <laughs> the ice capades. You didn't know you were going to star in the ice capades this morning on your way to work. <laughs> It's, it's really interesting to work with that because there's plenty of times to practice that, to see how you do. Watch your reaction in very short periods when, it, when it, something like a sound like that, <laughs> a startling sound, a startling situation. You can work down to the finest, shortest periods. See if you can undo your startle reaction even. It's possible actually. There's been some studies on this, actually, with with monks and meditators. And uh, psychologists presume that you couldn't do it, but they what they do is they put headphones on you uh, with a gunshot. And so it's very loud, and it's, it's a recording of a gun going off. And they even, like, seasoned policemen and cops and uh, soldiers and stuff jump when they when it goes off. They react like that. But some meditators have been able to diffuse that, even that startle reaction, even when it 
sort of gunshot goes off right next to your ear sort of thing. So it's like keeping an eye, this, this form of equanimity is keeping an eye on your, on your resistance and your, your shock, being shocked by the situation or falling into sadness, etc. This is keeping you up, light, free in the midst of this. Now, what's interesting about this is, is this really an emotion? Or is it just the absence of negative emotions? Is it the presence of positive emotion, or is it just the absence of negative emotions? And quite often, when people, in a, the philosophical way, it's kind of the, they describe it as the absence. But obviously, in, the, in this case, it's the presence, because, say... As you recited tonight, I will abide pervading one quarter with a mind or heart, we changed it to heart, imbued with equanimity. So something, you can imbue it, your heart, with equanimity. It's not merely with the absence of negativity. It's imbued with equanimity. Likewise, the second, likewise, the third, likewise, the fourth. So above, below, around, everywhere, and to all as to myself. I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a heart imbued with equanimity, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. Abundant, exalted, immeasurable. So I would say that has to be an emotion. And not only that, it's a radiation to others. Like That's very interesting. The cultivation of equanimity within yourself, this stable, balanced, sterling quality that allows you to remain lucid, but responsive. Now, how do you radiate to others? I think it's just the the wish that it's it has a that they may also find this equanimity, because until you do, you will be in distress. Uh, to it's a well wishing the wish that others may find their way to this ease and lightness and clarity that their suffering may be relieved through this is what you're radiating to them. You're radiating at the same time as you're feeling it. So it's when you feel this, you're kind of like you've climbed up a mountain outside of maybe a very chaotic city crowded, noisy, bad air. Finally find your way out and then you go up into the mountains and you see the thing from the distance. And you see all that activity in those people down there and their tiny little cars. And you, you're you exalting 
in your freedom and your distance from it. It's so clean and pure. You can get your head together. You can, because when you're immersed in it, it's hard to. You're torn and you're moved around by emotions. So when you're out of it like that, you're in this uh, healthy state, a state of extreme health. And then what comes up is that may they all find their way out of that congestion to a, a much more exalted vision of life. And that's, of course, what people are doing. They, these mega cities that are like Calcutta and so forth that are just riddled with pollution and ailments that are from the environment. We, when we go there, and if you're from a place where the environment is clean, you just think, wow, how do, how do they manage? It's oppressive. It's continuously oppressive. And your immediate wish would be that they would discover what clean air feels like and what what a, a clean environment how uplifting that is to the human psychology so that's that's the sharing of equanimity is the it's the pure the pureness the clarity the cl- cleanliness of things Some of these cities, though, um, that are crowded like that, they do have a quality of, of warmth to them as well, human warmth. There's a lot of little busy little stalls and people and kids and stuff all over the streets. And you come, especially like a Canadian city, you, you can walk down the empty streets of the suburbs. All there are is glowing, flickering blue lights in the windows, not another human on the street. <laughs> It's very, it's very clean <laughs> and very sterile. There's, a, there's an isolation, a lack of human warmth. And I think people who come from these more uh, warmer countries are kind of taken aback by the absolute emptiness of the, <laughs> of the streets and the places. Just buildings, no people. So that is uh, that we have to populate that the the, clair- the cleanliness shouldn't be sterility. It's clean, it's fresh, beautiful, but it doesn't eliminate the human warmth of things as well. And that's something that actually we literally do have to balance. And the city planners have to learn how in this, these climates they have to somehow learn how to bring back a human quality to to the streets, you know, without creating chaos or pollution. So this is the Buddha is a an excellent uh, city planner, a nice clean city with lots of human warmth in it. So it's the balance of these, um, the, 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 the role of equanimity in the balance of these sublime abidings is very important. For compassion, of course, this is what the, the people in the, in the service, the you know, 
health industries uh, need so much is to make sure that compassion is, doesn't lapse into this, into despair or, or burnout. And that's what equanimity can do. <clears throat> so that is a little encouragement and uh, reminder to practice your equanimity and practice it in all kinds of ways, both in being startled and shocked and also long-term stressful uh, situations. Learning to initiate this equanimity right first thing in the morning before anything happens. You can't wait until something happens to do equanimity. It has to be initiated, cultivated, deepened, developed, pervasive. It's, we, we do this with the loving-kindness, the 11 benefits of loving-kindness as a preamble to it is about eight or nine repetitions of how much practice this really requires. And equanimity is every bit as much. It's, it's something you practice all the time. You remind yourself all the time. You start the day this way. You remind yourself through the day. And you finish the day this way. So speaking of finishing the day, that's it.